1: Joining me today for my 250th podcast to discuss the climate crisis is pediatrician Dr. Aaron Ari Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and Global Environment, or Sea change at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Assistant Professor as well of Pediatrics. Dr. Bernstein, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, David.
1: Dr. Bernstein's complete bio is, of course, posted on this podcast website. Briefly, on background, listeners are aware the United Nations COP26 meeting in Glasgow recently concluded. Though pledges were made to cut methane gas emissions, limit deforestation, and finance a green economy, they, like previous commitments, will not be measured or verified. The U.S. continued to exhibit in some intransience, moreover by refusing to sign a pledge to phase out coal, despite the fact it is the single biggest source of CO2 emissions worldwide and the fact the U.S. generates 20 percent of its electricity from coal. The U.S. also continues to oppose adequately funding countries to recover from climate fuel disasters disproportionately caused by U.S. carbon emissions. To add insult to injury, earlier this week the Biden administration announced it would launch the largest ever auction of oil and gas drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico, a policy defined by Earth Justice as a quote-unquote climate bomb. In sum, based on analysis of countries' 2030 GHG, or greenhouse gas emission targets, the latest Climate Action Tracker finding shows global warming doubling to 2.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels or considerably warmer than the Paris Accord 2015's goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius. As for the healthcare industry's considerable contribution, to the climate crisis, the U.S. healthcare industry, along with federal policymakers, have still not, or have yet to take meaningful action. With me, again, to discuss the climate disaster is Harvard's Dr. Arie Aaron Bernstein. And finally, listeners may recall I interviewed Dr. Bernstein's colleague slash former student, Dr. Renee Salas, both in June and December of 2019. So with that as background, uh, Dr. Bernstein, first of all, I genuinely welcome you uh, to this uh, discussion, so thank you for your time. Let's start again with COP26. You participated in the meeting, virtually made a presentation. So of course I have to ask you, what are your conclusions or what
0: conclusions do you draw? The conclusion I draw is that we've got our work cut out for us. I, I think you highlighted many of the shortcomings, David, I think and, and the successes, but the reality is we're not where we need to be, either on the mitigation side or the adaptation side. And and so for those of us who have been working on this a while, we, we see progress, and I'm, I'm heartened by it. And, you know, the science makes clear we, we have a lot of work to do, and, and I, for one, am, am committed as ever to, to continue to push.
1: Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's go immediately next to, of course, your organization that I introduced, the Center for Climate Health and The Global Environment, again, acronym C-CHANGE. Your organization addresses seven issues, including, not surprisingly, education research. You do have a media outreach uh, component. Uh, Concerning education, I I, I have to ask you this. I imagine you're aware of John Kotcher's survey that appeared uh, this past spring in Lancet Planetary Health. In fact, I interviewed John about that survey, and the findings of the survey were really remarkable, I found at least to the extent that clinicians were not really that aware of the climate crisis, the extent to which uh, it exists, and its effects. And I'll just uh, provide one finding. So uh, one thing that he found in responses to the question, what explains barriers to engagement by clinicians as it relates to the climate crisis, the survey found that 41% stated that they lack sufficient knowledge. 31% said it would make no difference. If they engaged, 22% uh, said they thought there was little peer support, 60%. The topic was too controversial, 14%. Engaging with the public was too risky for them professionally or personally. So there are other findings, I'm sure, about which you're aware. Um, For example, 57% think uh, the climate crisis will only cause moderate uh, amount of harm, 51% think. Um, uh, only 50% think it will increase poverty due to resultant economic hardships, uh, and only less than half believe that uh, heat-related illnesses and rising hunger will result. So it's fairly sobering. What's your understanding, or how do you understand, explain, since you're trying to uh, further education in the field, why are we where we are with this
0: amongst the clinical community? Well, I think this is a cross-section in time that that study looked at, and I think on the one side of it, those numbers would have, in fact, showed far lesser understanding uh, five years ago. Uh, and sure. I, I've I've been doing this 20 years, and we started educating on climate health. Our center was founded in 96. We offered the first course at a medical school anywhere in the world on climate change and health. Uh, it was distributed on VHS tape, if you can believe it, to dozens of countries around the world. Uh, And even today, 20 years later, we occasionally get notes from folks in you know random parts of the earth saying that course really put us on a path to learn more about this. So on the one hand, you know, a lot of people in healthcare in public health, I think, know about climate and health uh, than they used to. But as that survey suggests, and I think it's important to acknowledge that the United States actually wasn't in that survey sample. Mm -hmm. Um, It was international at a very wide geographic spread, but it was primarily uh folks in uh uh, the uk and canada i think were the biggest uh contributors if i remember right um that we've got a long way to go and and i think particularly in places that are likely to see the biggest um hits from climate change uh particularly in the global south we have we have a lot of room you know the piece about political concern and controversy uh, it is important, but I, I find that the, the more people within health sectors uh, start recognizing how climate isn't just a health problem, uh, it is also a problem for health care, meaning it makes it harder to do our jobs, uh, the less political it gets very quickly because politicians realize that if people can't get access to health care, uh, they lose their jobs, unless, of course, it's a dictatorship and then it's a whole other can of worms.
1: Right, uh, I could pick up on your last comment there, but i'll 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 resist, and let's move on so th- there are really two substantive questions in m- in my mind on my list here, and this is one of them, or most substantive uh see change in reading your materials, which i I, I studied somewhat exhaustively, uh, I cannot find doing any direct uh, policy work um, per se, uh, and I found that surprising for several reasons, first of course you're Harvard. Secondly, you have an impressive uh, uh, number of board members, uh, least of which, of course, Gina McCarthy and John Kerry. Um, So I'm curious to know uh, why that is, particularly considering where we are, you know, your opening comment, you know, we have a lot of work to do. I think everyone would would admit that. Um, Is that a conscious choice? Is it a bandwidth issue? Um, But again, you're Harvard and... If you wanted to play in D.C., I think it would be
0: phenomenally welcomed. Well, we do actually engage on policy, and I I need to be clear on a couple of things. The first is that both Gina and and John are are no longer on our advisory board since they're working in the administration, but they they were. Um, The second is we actually have a number of of papers that directly assess policy issues, uh, including a paper in health affairs uh, that uh, Ashish Jaha and Renee Salas and I I co-authored. Um, we have many more papers that look at specific policies that have been either proposed or enacted related to climate, whether that's the Clean Power Plan, the MAPS rule, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, the Transportation Climate Initiative, uh, which is an initiative to decarbonize the uh, transportation corridor in New England, um, we 're about to begin work on the proposed methane role of EPA, and those are just a few examples. We in fact see our role primarily in the research realm as policy uh, focused so uh, I think what you 're telling me, david is uh, it 's not easy to see that on our website, <laughs> but uh, rest assured our our, our intent and in our work is to do research that that has direct relevance to policy decisions, whether that 's related to buildings transportation. Um, energy systems uh, in particular.
1: Well, thank you for that clarification. I I feel better. Um, Of course, you know what happened to the Clean Power Plan uh, provision. So um, let me ask you this uh, specific question. I did forward this to you uh, uh, in advance. Uh, Walt Vernon and I wrote a piece in June where we spelled out in detail uh, an argument that to get uh, at uh, hospitals reducing their footprint, that uh, CMS could revise conditions of participation and initially require hospitals to publicly report. You probably know the healthcare industry, unlike other large uh, economic sectors in the U.S., does not generally report uh, their carbon emissions. So initially to report, and that be a requirement to participate, say, in the Medicare program. And then, of course, the second step would be that they be uh, required to demonstrate a, a plan or path to reducing, eventually eliminating uh, their emissions. I'm sure this 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 idea is pretty straightforward. I've talked to administration officials. They're not lost on this policy opportunity. Uh, what's your general sense of using existing, such as COPs, to try to get at the industry's emissions? And this is a leading question, of course, because, uh, Ari, we'll get to your participation in the National Academy of Medicine effort.
0: Sure. I think, on the one hand, David, there's no question that healthcare can have a much larger leadership role on decarbonization. And we see leaders popping up around the country. Uh, organizations like Healthcare Without Harm have, you know, a few dozen healthcare systems, hospitals that have really stepped up and shown the way. These include you know, hospitals like Boston Medical Center, that's a safety net hospital. They include uh, hospitals in the Gunderson system, which is more traditional, Kaiser, you know, it's a standard it's mm-hmm. folks. But the reality is the vast majority of the health systems in the United States haven't really engaged anywhere close to one might uh, expect given the outsized contribution of healthcare to carbon emissions. So you know there are carrots and sticks here, uh, and you know a big old stick would come from you know a value-based payment system that that accounted for you know emissions intensity for care. Uh, and is that going to happen? Maybe. Uh, would it be helpful if hospitals did that without the stick? Sure. Uh, one of the carrots that's out there, and 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 this is the thing that's that that you know is really surprising to me is that a lot of the health systems that have worked to get carbon out of their systems have actually benefited financially. Mm-hmm. And and so there's this sort of odd bifurcation in healthcare where some systems say this is, you know, getting off of fossil fuels and into renewables is critical to our bottom line. And then you hear from other folks that it's just, too, you know, it's they see the climate change as a critical problem. Uh, but it just seems impossible. Too expensive, um, too much uh, red tape, so forth and so on. And so we're really working right now to to figure out that bifurcation, right? Because we need to get healthcare on board from the very simple standpoint that they're a big emitter. But the other side of it, of course, is that we can't just have healthcare decarbonized. <laughs> we need the country to decarbonize. And, and healthcare actually has a very important position in, in driving a national conversation towards decarbonization because climate change is politicized. It doesn't deserve to be, but it is. Uh, and we need to depoliticize it. The, arguably, the best way to do that is to talk about climate as a health issue. And the best messengers for that message are people within healthcare. Uh, so there's really two strong reasons. Uh, as uh, you likely heard in COP, the United States, uh, along with some 40 other countries, said that we were going to start decarbonizing uh, in our country, the, the federal part of the health care systems, healthcare systems. So the VAs, uh, federally qualified health centers, and so we're going to see that play out in, in the coming years. But you know what happens with all the Medicare <laughs> recipient uh, institutions. Uh, is is now coming into view as to how that's going to play out. Uh,
1: thank you. Um, on your point relative to the expense, and I have these conversations. There's sort of two crude paradigms. One is that's what it is. It's some added extra costs. And per your point, it actually is from another uh, paradigm perspective. It's it's an investment and it's a savings ultimately. And, in fact, you're probably well aware, you know, the conversation sooner or later on this gets to stranded asset value issues or questions. Um, so that's that's sort of – I think that there's a required change in understanding, and you're probably certainly well aware of kilowatt-hour pricing, competitiveness as it relates to um, renewables versus uh, fossil fuel combustion. Let me, let me just put – maybe rephrase this maybe as a yes or no question – since you mentioned healthcare without harm, that's largely of, you know, it's, you know, organizations volunteer to participate, et cetera, et cetera, and they're your neighbor. They're obviously uh, Gary Cohen in Boston. Um, is it your view that this is going to require regulation? That the federal government is going to have to regulatorily impose uh, requirements, whether it's, as you say, uh, some value based payment incentive or other, but that's required
0: ultimately. Would you agree with that? No, I think it it could come from better legislation and not regulation. I mean, right now, the playing field is not leveled here. The reason why we haven't decarbonized is because our policies have enabled huge externalities to the market Mm -hmm. that come in the form of people dying, uh, excess health care burdens, utilization of care and a host of other harms because we're just not paying the fair price of fossil fuel use. If we were, we would have been off fossil fuels, you know, decades right. ago. So what we need is an appropriate price for the fuels we're using. And if we do that, then you're not going to need to regulate health care or anybody else. You're going to, the market is going to drive people where we should be already. Now, the political reality is that Congress which is increasingly uh, influenced by, you know, individuals of great means and corporations because of how the Supreme Court has acted to enable political voice for corporations and individuals. You know, there was a concerted effort of the fossil fuel industry to make sure Americans were misled, to make sure that policymakers were um, brainwashed. And that was very successful and set us back a long way. So, The prospect of getting a real carbon policy through legislative action, you know, I I wouldn't bet my birdbath on that, although I think it would be really good. And if that doesn't happen, then, yes, you fall into this realm of, you know, Medicare essentially giving incentives to providers to make sure that the care is provided is high-quality care, and that includes making sure the care is not delivered with excess waste, including energy use. Uh, and, of course, transitioning off of fossil fuels otherwise. So, you know, I, I, I think we'd be much better off if we did what all the scientists and economics tells us, uh, which is to put a, a price on carbon that reflects the true cost of fossil fuels. We have that knowledge uh, and it's it's usable um, if we don't get there uh, and it doesn't look like we're getting there very soon. And as you are well aware, the time frame on this is not long. Uh, we are going to have to find, you know, creative ways to do this that that give folks the right incentives to move forward.
1: Right. Well, you do know the track record on a carbon tax uh, to date. And per your point about uh, this is all now very time-limited or increasingly time-limited, that's why I asked the question. Uh, I I think it's increasingly... um, let's just say, optimistic to think that Congress will get us to a meaningful tax. You know, the, the discussions are sort of paltry dollar values. In any event, uh,
0: thank you for that. Let's 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 move on. Um, well, actually, David, I think you raise an important point. I, I, I think that the evidence, um, Americans' opinions on a carbon fee and dividend program are quite good, and it has been backed by a wide swath of stakeholders. So politically, the idea of a carbon fee and dividend, and, you know, they use fee because it's not the word tax, but it's the same idea, mm-hmm. Um, is actually quite popular. It's popular actually with conservatives uh, and with, and with uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how popular it is actually with, um, you know, progressives, but certainly there's a large group of folks who are very, uh, I think, interested in a carbon fee and dividend program that actually would make most Americans better off at the end of the day. So I don't think it's politically dead. I, I think we need the right kind of advocacy around it. Um, People have tried to manipulate it in ways that I think are not um, that helpful, like, for example, putting in pieces that suggest, you know, you can't do regulation at all if this passes and and other things that are not effective. But I I don't think a fee and dividend program is politically dead. Well, since you
1: hinted at Citizens United, (laughs) if you look at the vote for Build Back Better or the provisions in Build Back Better, and I actually looked at them this morning. They're 60 to 80 percent public opinion supported, and you know we got the vote we got. Um, so uh, the Congress can afford to literally uh, largely ignore uh, political opinion. Also you know, the endless examples, the federal minimum wage, et cetera. That's popularly supported. Let me, I do want to get to the National Academy of Medicine. So you serve on the steering committee. You're also with your colleague, again, Dr. Salas, on the education and communication work group. That was launched a couple months ago. Um, so my questions, I, I would just ask, what's your sense of how that's progressing? You know, I could ask specifically, so feel free. To date, certainly that process is not transparent. And, of course, uh, the National Academy, much like the federal government, uh, per our earlier point about the time limit here, Uh, works at, the phrase of course, works at the pace of government, and we can't afford to spend that much time. So relative to uh, how the effort's evolving, and of course, when might we see some recommendations, which of course, again, I'm suggesting need to be done in a timely manner.
0: Sure. Well, I can assure you, David, that uh, it's not just me who uh, has a real sense of urgency in this group of folks who have gotten together here, and we're highly cognizant of the reputation that things come out of the National Academy in a time frame that might not be compatible with the actions needed to address climate change out of the healthcare sector. So our working group, uh, you know, we've already met several times, we're already looking at things we can start doing. And I think that, you know, while I can't give a time frame, which um, is beyond my pay grade, but I can assure you that the sense of urgency is there. And, and I can tell you that on our last meeting, I was, uh, you know, it, it, me- many members of the working group uh, were were pushing on the urgency and uh, end, of, end of action. So I think the, the things that the working groups are, are really trying to do are to, you know, address things like what are the barriers that, the regulatory barriers that can be relatively quickly um, adjusted by an administration, right? So things that could be done without a legislative act. Um, how can we figure out the right metrics so that uh, we can make sure that if value-based payments come into the picture, we have sort of the right frameworks in place to pick up and run with. Uh, we're, we're also on this issue of, of knowledge and education per the survey. You said, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're absolutely committed to making sure that we use the the platforms that are already present that have reached to the, the health workforce, uh, so that you know we can no one in healthcare can hide behind a banner of I didn't know. Uh, moving forward, so you know there's a broad agenda of how to approach decarbonization. The sense of urgency is definitely there, and 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 I think you know we will deliver things that that will be useful. Um, in, in those areas.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, the question, I, you know, I, I, I did note uh, the Harvard president made the, his comment in September. Of course, it was debated what he actually meant when he made the statement. Certainly you saw the Harvard magazine piece on di- um, divesting fossil fuels. Let's let's leave. I don't want. To, let's leave that one aside. Um, there, there are two other outstanding uh, issues here. Certainly. You do mention in some of your writings you use the word extinction. This is this is the this is the this is the related issue to the carbon crisis, which is uh, the the climate crisis, which is um, uh, global warming uh, is is aiding and abetting uh, what's termed the sixth mass extinction. Uh, You you probably saw the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences articles out by um, Ceballos and uh, Paul Ehrlich. Uh, where they, the phrase they use over and again is biological annihilation. Um, I'm sure Dr. Frumpkin and you have talked about this. Um, why does this this issue, which is actually more time sensitive um, than even the climate crisis, why are we not connected the dots, and why is that not part of this conversation?
0: The the mass extinction of the moment isn't a part of the conversation because we haven't brought it home to people's everyday lives. It you know most most folks are living in cities where you know we don't farm, uh, we don't hunt and gather our food. Um, there isn't the, the the sort of palpable bond to the living world that I think really informs the cultures of indigenous peoples around the world, which have been extraordinary um, conservators of our biological uh, wealth on the planet. And, and and you know, we wrote a book, uh, gosh, 13, 14 years ago now, which really laid out the frameworks to make these connections more clearly. How is it that the conservation of nature directly relates to human welfare? Um, clearly, we've made Not enough progress, but, you know, there is a field of planetary health now, which is increasingly visible and increasingly attuned to in political circles, especially in light of the pandemic. This past summer, we had an international task force at Harvard that looked at the scientific evidence, just as the IPCC would do so for climate change, on the issue of emerging infection risk as relates to pandemics, And we did that because we saw leaders around the world starting to talk about what we were going to do to address future pandemic risk. And what we heard was, let's do more drugs, tests and vaccines. And that is obviously critical when you have a pandemic. I mean, we need to get vaccination rates up dramatically in the United States and other certainly Mm -hmm. in places around the world. But we cannot vaccinate our way out of future pandemics. And this pandemic is the best example because we had the vaccine ready within a month of the sequence and it took another, you know, 10 months to get it into people's arms. And, you know, we still have one in five people in most places in Africa having gotten a dose. We know how to prevent pandemics at the source. And that in part means we need to address forest conservation, which is why the movement at COP to invest in forests uh, is critical, not just for climate, but for pandemic risk. And the and the viewpoint of planetary health is that we have acted for a long time in a reductionistic view of our health and well-being, and it's been tremendously successful, you know, whether it is the vaccines, the antibiotics, you name it. But the problems we have now, the crises we have now, whether it's the extinction crisis or the climate crisis – are byproducts of our reductionistic lenses and we cannot continue to use pure reductionism to fix them. Uh, And so we see this. And, and, you know, in response to that report, that is actually why I was speaking at COP, was about how we can't just look at trees as containers for carbon molecules. They are, in fact, of great value, not, you know, for indigenous peoples, for pandemic risk, Uh, for a host of other things, and to simply pretend that they're only one of those things in our thinking is going to land us in another massive crisis, which will be much harder to fix down the road. So I I think you're right in the sense that most folks are not seeing extinction as a crisis of human health in this moment or that it directly relates to our welfare now, but we've made progress and we're going to make more progress uh, But we need to m- keep our eye on the reality that through our innovations, most people on Earth these days do not have that direct tie to nature. Mm-hmm. And so we need to use uh, education, uh, particularly around the health and, and, and well being components of it, to, to drive those connections home.
1: Thank you. This is, you know, the Secretary General's comment over and over again about the percent of infectious diseases now zoonotic, et cetera. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, we have maybe time for one last quick question. Of course, I'd be remiss. This administration is all about health equity. And you're probably, you're certainly well aware that the climate crisis disproportionately harms minority communities, or health harm is disproportionately uh, suffered by uh, these communities. Um, you know, it's an impossible issue, possible way to uh, question to phrase. Uh, I'm sure you're well aware. Um, Let me just put it in context of the NAM effort, National Academy effort. How might you address or mitigate uh, the effects of the climate crisis, uh, the pronounced effect? And it's not just minor. It's it's, the other way to phrase it is on Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, you know, seniors
0: who are frail and um, young children. The, The way I think about this, David, is that we have a lot of health concerns right now in the country, right? There are huge burdens of disease. Which the healthcare system is not particularly fabulous at redressing, uh, whether that's obesity, whether that's mental health, um, and a host of other uh, challenges. And, and, and when you think about it for just a minute, you realize that the actions we need to take to address these large burdens of disease, which the healthcare system is not particularly well able to deal with, uh, we need to take climate actions. And, and, and those actions disproportionately benefit the populations you were talking about. So, you know, obesity. We were the first nation in the history of humanity where where, where low-income individuals were the ones who became obese, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not by our genetics, right? That's by how we designed our communities, the kinds of foods that are affordable, our access to exercise and, 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 and or the greater... Uh, accessibility of sitting in cars and driving long long periods so what is climate action well climate action is more active transit ac- access more public transit access um you know moving away from red meat in particular to more plant-based diets the, the fact that you know all of those climate actions in some ways are less accessible or, or or more expensive uh uh is a function of a distorted market right red meat is deadly mm-hmm. uh it, it, it creates huge amounts of pollution. Uh, it's associated with cancer, heart disease, you name it. And it's cheap. <laughs> right. That is, that's bizarre. Um, driving, you know, we drive a lot in the United States, driving in cars is, is deadly. I mean, sitting in car, and that's not from accidents. That's from sitting in cars, the stress, the, 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 the effects it has on our, on our body weights, um, the exposure to traffic air pollution, uh, you know and, and but yet it's it's for most folks the cheapest, fastest, you know, most accessible way to get there. again, this this doesn't compute. So the climate actions that would electrify vehicles, put in public transit, make accessible, more active transit are all going to reduce emissions, reduce pollution, accelerate climate action, and of course promote health equity because the communities that get dosed to pollution are next to the roadways, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, um, if you are concerned with health equity, you must have climate action. We must have climate action to get health equity in this country. And, and, and in the most important sense, in the benefits to health equity we get when we take climate action. There's of course the piece, which is that absent climate action, the extreme events of climate change are going to really hammer the communities that are already the most uh, you know, set uh, you know, with the odds set against them uh, today. But I think to me, the, the critical piece is that we can really do a lot to promote health and health equity uh, with climate actions.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, well-reasoned. So with that, uh, Dr. Bernstein, uh, we're at our time. I, pre- I uh, We covered a lot of ground. I appreciate uh, your addressing some large, you know, pretty uh, substantive uh, questions in a time-efficient way. So thank you for that. I wish you all the luck, uh, best with C-Change, um, and of course, the National Academy of Medicine Efforts. So thank you again.
0: Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please listen again soon.